Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts. Today, we're talking politics and how politics affects the oil industry. Jim, what's going on in Canada? So Seamus O'Regan is Canada's energy minister, and he summed up Ottawa's plight in a recent interview. Reagan said, and I quote, there is no way we are reaching net zero without Alberta, referring to their commitment to the Paris Climate Accord and the 2050 net zero emissions economy. He goes on to say, our prosperity and our economy are highly dependent on it, it being oil. In fact, the energy sector is the largest subsector in the Canadian economy, producing 10.6% of Canada's GDP. Large chunks of the rest of the Canadian economy are also in energy-intensive industries such as mining, automotive, and aerospace. So here's the conflict. Ottawa knows this. They also know there are tens of millions of dollars of foreign dollars flowing into the group that do nothing but besmudge Canadian oil companies and lobby to move investment out of Canada. We saw this in the last few years as a $30 billion exodus out of the Canadian oil sands. One very large foreign integrated oil company, I won't mention Lernome, that divested in Canada ended up increasing their investment in the oil business in a country with virtually no environmental policy and an ever-changing government with no ability to even manage environmental controls. Canada is one of the strictest set of environmental controls on the planet. This is exactly the messy transition Seamus O'Regan is talking about. Ottawa must offend the revenue and direct, indirect, and induced jobs produced by the energy business. However, with the investment community being myopic in their investment approach to energy, the only place left to turn is China's Belt and Road Initiative. The political implications of China's debt diplomacy in Canada would be disastrous for Canada and very problematic for their neighbors to the south. Enter OPEC. What? OPEC? No, no, no. OPEC. Overseas Private Investment Corp. It's a U.S. federal agency based in Washington that connects private lenders with governments and developers in developing countries with an alternative to state-led financing models. So how does this relate to Canada? OPEC is a partnership. The Canadian arm is led by Paul Lamontagne of FinDev Canada, and the European arm is led by Nano Kliter of the 15-member European Development Finance Institutions, EDFI. For anyone looking for more detail on Canada's political energy situation, find Heidi McKillop's documentary called The Stranded Nation. One place you can find it is on the Canadian Energy Centre website, if for no other reason, watch the cinematography of the Canadian landscape. It's breathtaking. You know, maybe we should take a trip up to Canada. These 100-plus degree days are killing me. Um, tell us about the U.S. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, brother. Uh, for those not in Texas, it's hot even by Texas standards. So for the, for the U.S., I want to try to detail the energy policy of both major parties without any of the political rancor that polarizes these kinds of discussions. 
with a nod to my favorite game show host. I'll do it in two and two. Too good and too bad. Let's first start with President Trump's America Energy First, as he laid it, laid it out shortly after he took the presidency in 2016. So two main goals, produce low-cost energy and create American jobs. To do this, he had to roll back some regulations on oil, gas, and coal, shift around some funding, approve new production and export projects, as well as some pipeline projects that we talked about in previous episodes, open federal lands to drilling. He created the America First Offshore Energy Strategy, which opened millions of acres of federal offshore land. On the LNG side, he wanted to increase LNG imports, exports. In doing so, these exports would become a positive trade chip and then part of the trade policy. On the coal side, he wanted to revive the coal industry, mostly by rolling back some regulatory burden. Uh, two problems that he has faced since then is that the market was already working in the fact that in 2016, natural gas took over coal as the largest source of fuel for power generation. And pet coal sells for, for cheaper price than coal and also comes in a thermal and metallurgical grade. So the too good and too bad. The too good, the oil and gas industry is a very large industry, employs a lot of people. And the average salary in oil and gas is about 91000 and change, uh, as stated by the U.S. labor statistics. The average salary for renewables, as an example, is 51000 and change per year. This industry is ubiquitous in everybody's life. It's been around for about 150 years or so. And look around where you're sitting or driving. Everything that you can see and touch has been touched by the oil and gas industry. Uh, point number two on the good side, refined fuels are very dense in BTUs and they're on demand. And this is one of the reasons that combustion engines have been around for 100 or so years. Now to the bad side. Combustion engines have exhaust that has to be managed. Managing the backside of energy, even renewable energy, is something we need to get a lot better at. The only backside of energy we manage well is nuclear. And we do that because if we don't, it'll kill us. Number two, energy, uh, specifically oil, is not infinite. In my opinion, it'll be around uh, as long as I'm alive and probably as long as my children are alive, but it's still not an infinite quality. And at some point, we're going to have to move away from it. Okay, going to the other side, I got this directly from JoeBiden.com. And his policy is called Nine Key Elements of Joe Biden's Plan for Clean Energy. And as many of you know, uh, he brought on a, a VP candidate, uh, Kamala Harris, and uh, she's even stronger in this and specifically the New Green Deal um, than uh, candidate Biden is. So uh, nine key elements. Number one, reverse Trump's actions, which is to say uh, create some methane limits, um, new fuel economy standards, protect the Arctic National Wildlife 
Wildlife Refuge, ban new oil and gas leasing on public lands and waters. Number two, within the first year of office, put the U.S. on an irreversible path to achieve economy-wide net zero emissions no later than 2050, which then brings number three, rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Number four, invest $400 billion over 10 years in clean energy and innovation, which then leads to number five, distribute clean energy technologies, reduce the carbon footprint of U.S. buildings by 50% by 2035, install 500,000 public charging outlets by 2030, and make the U.S. agricultural sector the first in the world to achieve net zero emissions. Number six, make environmental justice a priority across all federal agencies. Number seven, hold polluters accountable. Number eight, create 10 million union jobs, mostly from federal investment in infrastructure. And one thing I'll note here is that there are currently about 14.7 million jobs in the U.S. workforce, so about 9% of the U.S. workforce is union. And number nine, retrain fossil fuel workers. So uh, too good and too bad on the renewable side. And just to be clear, with renewables, um, candidate Biden is talking about hydro, wind, biomass, solar, and geothermal. One notable missing thing there is he is not talking about nuclear. It's not in his plan. So good. Uh, Currently, the U.S. generates about 20% of its power generation from these five sources. Uh, As a note, nuclear is about 18%, natural gas 32%, and coal about 30%. Number two, uh, reduce greenhouse gases. Um, Obviously, this is to protect the ozone layer, and this will focus around uh, methane and carbon dioxide limits. Uh, And in association with that, reduce particulate matter. Now to the bad side. So each of these sources that I mentioned, hydro, wind, biomass, solar, and geothermal, has its own reliability issues. But that's not really the biggest problems. Investment in these projects needs money to build, permits to build, and arguably most important, once the electricity is generated, it has to you have to have a power purchase agreement with a utility for distribution, and this is proving to be the biggest problem. Number two, um, the distribution system in the U.S., which generally means the wires and substations are old. They were built for a different generation. They were built for a different business model, which is also outdated. So part of the 2009 stimulus bill allocated $3.6 billion to upgrade to a smart grid, only to realize that it's going to take hundreds of billions of dollars and about 20 years to create. Finally, power lines, specifically new power lines, are controversial in their own right. Yes, they are. So how's your friend AMLO? (laughs) Yeah. Um, President Obrador may be facing the harshest of all energy politics. He's facing down two pandemics, a national oil company corruption scandal, and a constitutional crisis. So let's break this down. Starting with the constitutional crisis and the corruption scandal. In December of 2013, Mexican President Enrico Nieto and the Mexican legislature settled to change the decreasing fortunes of Pemex 
by bringing in new money and technology in the form of joint ventures with Pemex. This is a massive shift in ideology for how Pemex was thought of by the government and the people of Mexico. In fact, it took a constitutional amendment to make this happen. After eight months of congressional wrangling, President Nieto signed into law the 21 component parts of this massive energy reform. It's important to note this extends to all forms of energy well beyond crude oil production and processing. As expected, banks and energy companies flocked to Mexico at the opportunity to expand their business. This is where the corruption kicked into high gear. And we're, we aren't even to the constitutional crisis yet. Bribery and bid rigging presented a windfall opportunity for greedy officials at the highest levels. Standing accused currently are former President Nieto, former Pemex head Emilio Lozoya, and former finance minister Luis Vidigare. There will be more. President Obrador is getting bipartisan help in exposing the corruption. Where he's not getting much love is his step-by-step -step efforts to overturn the constitutional amendment that overturned the 76-year-old constitutional constraint that created Pemex and then blocked Pemex from working with foreign companies. A correlation coalition of eight conservative governors is leading the opposition against President Obrador's renationalizing of the oil industry. His lone support comes from the governor of his home state of Tabasco. Tax consequences alone could be a week-long seminar. Time limits any discussion of the contractual obligations, royalties, profit sharing, union contracts, governance, and pension fund liabilities. Incidentally, these pension fund liabilities account for over 49% of Pemex's overall debt, as stated by the Ministry of Finance. The ministry mentions the benefit is for every Pemex worker retiring after the age of 55, they will receive half their salary for life, life insurance, and health benefits for the worker and their spouse. Stay tuned on this issue. There's going to be much, much more to come in the few, next few years. Everyone listening is aware of the damage that the coronavirus pandemic has done to the energy business. Corey and I went through details in episode six. Pemex has been particularly hit hard. August 9th, Pemex reported 272 COVID deaths from current workers, 800 deaths from retired workers and family members, as well as over 15,000 suspected cases. And if this isn't bad enough, there's a second pandemic plaguing Mexico, gang violence from fuel theft. In 2018, Pemex says 56,000 barrels a day of gasoline and diesel were stolen from the pipelines, trucks, and tank farms. Now they're saying this number has come down to about 5,000 barrels a day. For years now, the Santa Rosa de Lima cartel and its leader, Jose Antonio Japez, also known as El Maro, has been gaining influence and making lots of money by stealing gasoline and diesel from the 38,000 barrel a day pipeline from the Salamanca refinery to the Tula refinery, which is just north of Mexico City. Amaro's capture this month came from a unified effort of federal, state, and local law enforcement. Which is particularly interesting about this unity is it comes after months of public disputes between President o 
Obrador, and arguably the second most powerful person in Mexican politics, Governor Diego Rodriguez Vallejo. Perhaps these two have found some common ground to build on as President Obrador tries to execute his energy policy. This policy is limiting foreign corporate investment in the Mexican oil industry while turning to China's Belt and Road Initiative and a government-to-government financing model. So, Corey, why don't you tell us about South America? Well, South America is no stranger to political strife. Recent developments there have rang true with past issues. Let me start off today with Guyana. I've spoken about Guyana here several times, more recently mentioned the issues the country has had with its presidential elections. Here's a sort, the short version of what transpired. First, there was the March 2nd presidential election, which Guyana's incumbent presidents, a Partnership for National Unity, Alliance for Change, coalition claimed victory. After reluctantly agreeing to a vote recount, the country's chief elections officer refused to issue official results and asserted that several thousand votes for the opposition party, the People's Progressive Party, CIVIC, or PPPC, should be thrown out. With those votes included, it meant that the incumbent would be unseated. As you can imagine, this all didn't sit very well. Legal challenges ensued. The U.S. threatened sanctions against, quote, individuals who have been responsible for, complicit in, undermining democracy in Guyana. This all happened post a December 2018 no-confidence vote against President David Granger, which effectively started the process to have the March 2020 vote. Well, the vote and subsequent election issues are behind us, and a new president, Mohaben Irfan Ali, has been sworn in. So now the real fun begins. Guyana is a small economy that has, until recently, been based on agriculture, some bauxite, and gold mining and timber. We've covered the start and lies of production there that occurred in December, and the Guyana crude production will reach 120,000 barrels per day this month, even in spite of lower crude price and demand, due, demand loss due to COVID. That production in and of itself will boost Guyana's economy significantly this year. It's not the near doubling that the IMF saw before the coronavirus. The Guyanese GDP is expected to grow 57% this year alone and plans to achieve 750,000 barrels per day production by 2026. What's perhaps even more significant is this. In the Stahlbrook block, in which Liza Crude is produced, ExxonMobil and its partners, Sinook and Hess, have made discoveries of over 8 billion barrels of oil equivalent. If these are booked as proven reserves, that will mean that Guyana's reserve base is larger than, for example, Mexico's. And never mind the resource curse that Jim mentioned a few weeks ago. We are already seeing that in Guyana. A central tenant of the PPPC's campaign was that Granger's government was not taking enough of the oil revenue. And the country is frankly unprepared for the takeoff of production. Guyana's National Resource Fund was not established until 2019. And the country's Department of Energy didn't even exist until 2018. The redeeming variable, however, is this. The new government has vowed to re-examine the agreements and renegotiate where it makes sense, but it has not called for any type of retroactive changes to the agreements. This aspect renders Guyana a more attractive place to do business than many other global locales. Mm. So Venezuela is also no stranger to uh, politics. What can you tell us about Venezuela? (laughs) Yeah, so... Uh, does anyone remember why we're sanctioning PDVSA? Uh, it's not just the U.S. applying the sanctions, but it actually began that way. I mean, essentially, it all started way back in 2008 with sanctioning of several Venezuelans, 
including former and current government officials, for involvement in the illegal drug trade. It's taken off from there with increasing drug-related sanctions being applied. The inflection point was 2014, with the U.S. applying sanctions for human rights violations uh, for actions taken during the 2014 Venezuelan protests. It's continued with more sanctions on individuals and organizations for human rights abuses, corruption, money laundering, degradation of the rule of law, repression of democracy, etc. But where it all came to a head, at least as far as energy goes, was January 2019 with the sanctions against PDVSA. These essentially came about to the Venezuelan presidential crisis, i.e. Maduro retaining power when much of the international community uh, viewed his sustained presidency as Ill illegitimate and to stop him from using PDVSA as his piggy bank. Well, uh, politics have brought us here. About a month ago, I stated that Venezuelan crude production is down to about between 100 to 200,000 barrels per day. And we've talked about the difficulties in the country getting gasoline imported or even out of its own refineries because of the inability to import in spare parts to get and keep refineries running. I mean, we're just seeing how in the news, how the United States has uh, taken four Iranian vessels bound for Venezuela with gasoline. Crews at tank tops because shippers don't want to risk U.S. sanctions to lift Venezuelan crude. There are some crude for loan repayment cargoes leaving and some humanitarian diesel imports. But by and large, even where it doesn't look like sanctions will be run afoul, shippers are reluctant to become involved with Venezuela. More recently, Venezuela has been offering to use its own fleet to ship crude. But even there, of the 24 vessels that PDVSA controls, only four have valid insurance and classification. The story of Venezuelan-controlled ships rhymes with all other things PDVSA. Many are unseaworthy, crews are sparse because of non-payment, PDVSA can't get needed parts or pay to have work done, and there's a constant risk of vessel cargo seizure to satisfy creditors. And now I'm hearing that a joint venture that PDVSA had with PetroChina has fallen apart, leading Venezuela to lose three BLCCs from its controlled fleet. All this political and social mismanagement has led to greater strife for the country. And when the Maduro regime eventually ceases, the primary source of Venezuela's income is in such disrepair that it will take significant investment and time for it to see a semblance of its former glory. Yeah. It's anybody's guess when Maduro's regime will end. But what else he had for South America? Well, uh, for some time, there has been political unrest in Peru due to indigenous groups' complaints the Peruvian government has failed to provide for basic services, economic, environmental, and healthcare support, even where the government has allowed mining and oil sec sector activities to be conducted in those regions. In February, Peru's government promised $1.5 billion over the 20 to, 20, 20 to 2025 five-year period to build schools and water systems in the relevant districts. But COVID put a hold in these developments, and the tension came to a head last weekend with anti-government protests that led to multiple injuries, three deaths, and a shutting down of Petro Pauls, a Canadian company's production on the Britannia field. This isn't the first time that the tense political relationship between Peru's government and indigenous groups have caused issues for the oil industry. Last month, a European investment company backed out of a partnership with Petro Peru due to difficulties with the locals. And that follows talismans leaving Peru in 2013 after unsuccessfully trying for eight years to produce oil and to reach agreements with the Wampus Nation. Turning to Brazil, it was only a matter of time before we saw political issues relating to the sale of Petrobras's assets. 
Last month, lawmakers asked for a Supreme Court injunction to keep Petrobras from selling Repar because of a previous ruling requiring Petrobras to get congressional approval before selling strategic assets. Well, now a new complaint has arisen with the government's plan to sell its pre-salt marketing company, PPSA. What's a player debates over Brazil's production sharing models? But when it comes down to it, Economy Minister Paulo Guedes has indicated that he would like to privatize all state-owned companies and work towards stabilizing Brazil's finances. And overall, shrink the size of the Brazilian government. Issues to watch. So Jim, take us home. Politics and energy are inextricably linked. The impact of this industry becomes the lifeblood of the economy. And of course, politicians know this. We heard in every region and every country we talked about today, there are varying solutions being proposed and executed. What is becoming more and more obvious is these solutions are not an either-or situation, but an integration of existing and new situation. Thanks, everyone. Have a fantastic week.